and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bass. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Um, I'm uh, all holidayed out, although I'm yeah. sad that the holidays are over, but you know, if it lasted all year long, it wouldn't be special. Exactly. And we got, now we've got more holidays. Like what? Uh, Renaissance Fair is in <laughs> April. <laughs> Thai New Year. That's true. I go to Thai New Year. We've got uh, Comic-Con. That's a holiday. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I guess glass is coming out soon. Uh, uh, glass? <laughs> yeah. Who gives a shit about glass? Um, is that from something? <laughs> yes, that's from Die Hard. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't remember. <laughs> when Paul Gleason says we got guys out here, you know, picking glass out of their... Oh, right. Glass. Yeah. Who gives a shit about glass? Um, that's every time <laughs> that's, I that's see... That's a spot on Paul Gleason, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> well, no, the glass thing is Bruce Willis. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Either uh, way, it's uh, it sounded very, uh, very light. Every time... I'm glad you said glass because every time that I drive past a billboard or a bus ad or a bus stop ad that's for glass... I say to, in my head, the class gives a shit about class. <laughs> so I'm glad you said it. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I want to thank, first off, I want to thank, uh, once again, thank our listeners, um, Sarah and Ian, who sent us, mm-hmm. li- Sarah is a listener and contributor, but um, who sent us Christmas presents la- uh, last week. And I also, of course, want to thank Lino um, for spending his time on here talking about the history of Brazilian cinema. It was a really, really fun episode. Um, sorry you weren't there for that. Yeah. Um, you were on assignment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I was assigned to uh, my living room with a blanket over me as I was coughing and sniffling. Yeah, that's what I was. Yeah, um, but that that was fun. So uh, now we're all caught up. Mm-hmm. Who's uh, bringing this episode to the listeners? Well, I'll I'll tell you. If By you, whom it, is this episode brought to? If the you listeners? shut up, I will tell you. <sighs> it's going to be a long year. All right. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always going to be... Always going to be? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess that's technically true. It's not written here. I don't know why it uh, came into my head. Uh, that means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only eight ninety nine a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi is The Man Between, starring James Mason. The turbulent grounds of post-war Germany set the stage for this thriller amidst a politically divided Berlin. In many ways, a companion film to The Third Man, this underestimated uh, game of deception is a masterful realization of a city as chessboard of escape and pursuit. Uh, I'm a big fan of James Mason, so that sounds wonderful to me. Uh, and if uh, that sounds good to you, there is a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by the Dice Enthusiast Presents Podcast, a new series uh, based around a board game that four roommates played for the entirety of 2017. During that year, they were faced with problems like drug dealers moving in with them, mental breakdowns, infidelity, and a suicide attempt. A surprisingly personal podcast, Dice Enthusiast Presents is a prime example of life happening while you're making other plans or trying to play a game. So just go to DiceEnthusiast.com or click on the ad at BattleshipPretension.com to listen. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. <clears throat> Today, of course, I can't, no, I can't do this <coughs> without bringing the mood down. But, of course, I was listening to Captain and Tennille because sure. the captain passed away. Um, and uh, I was listening to uh, Mean Gene Okerlund's album the other day. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, it was amazing. Is that a good one? Yeah, it was great. Uh, rest in peace, Mean Gene, by the Indeed. way. Um, and rest in peace, Captain. Uh, and Bob Einstein. Uh, yes. Yeah. All 76. Isn't that weird? Oh, I, mean, I guess maybe it's not that weird. That's it's uh, within a few days that these three notable people all died at the same I age. Guess, but I'm betting a lot of 76 year olds died over the last three days. These are just the three whose names we know. The important ones <laughs> are the ones we're talking about. Um, yeah. Bob Einstein, Marty Funkhauser. Yeah. Uh, Super, Super Dave. Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, rest in peace. Anyway, all of this, uh, all of these albums. I'm sure there's some Bob Einstein on Spotify uh, or whatever. <laughs> um, sound great on tweakedaudio.com earbuds. You can find them at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code Pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code Pretension. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? 
Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler? Yes? Let's get into it, shall we? Okay. We are kicking off 2019 as we have kicked off the past couple of years with uh, our most oft-recurring guest. I'm not going to say favorite, yeah, but no, our no. most oft-recurring guest, it's Battleship Pretension, editor-at-large, Scott and I, and we're going to talk about his top 10 movies. Uh, I really made that was a bad hosting. After 11 years, to say the person's name and then still have more to say, that's not how you're supposed to do it. I should have said... To present us with this top 10 movies of 2018, Battleship Retention Editor-at-Large, Scott and I. I'm very excited that Scott is here. Uh, I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Uh, Scott, take it away. But first, David, almost what I was... 12 years. I said 11 tw- years. It'll be 12 years in like two months. Coming up on 12 years. Okay, and Scott- those 12 years would not be possible without our guest, Scott and I, who I absolutely adore. Okay, Scott, go ahead. Hello. Uh, I couldn't be your favorite if I come on that often. Like, the affection wears away, you know. Sure. Absence makes the heart grow fonder and all that. Okay. Well, Jen's my favorite person, and I'm married to her. Well, I'm saying you're there. Yeah. Yeah, we're all married to people who are, at least two of us, consider our wives our favorite person. I don't yeah. know. So it's been a pretty good year for movies, guys. <laughs> Julie, I love you. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I guess let's start with that because um, I'm not convinced. I, I, you know, it's it's arbitrary to say sure. one year was better than the other, but I, I feel like I've had and I've been catching up on stuff. So I've seen a couple things. I don't know if they'll come up in your list. So I'm not going to name them that have given me that feeling I've been mm-hmm. looking for all year. But from almost the entirety of 2018. I had the same number one movie of the year. It's since been replaced, but it lasted that long because I felt like very little really gave me that elation or that intellectual catharsis or whatever it is that I look for from movies that I think are great. I mean, and we need to be careful going too much into it because you and I have a top 10 episode coming up. Yeah. And I still have more to watch. Yeah. I still haven't watched the other side of the wind, by the way. Yeah, neither have I. <laughs> I keep putting What's wrong with yeah, I keep thinking Damn I'm going to get guys. to it. <laughs> Hypothetically, <laughs> I've been looking forward to it my whole life. And then it shows up, it's like, I'll get to it. Yeah, isn't yeah. that the modern condition? <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it depends on how strongly you felt about your number one choice, I guess. Like, my number one was the same up until November, I want to say. But it, I love the movie. Yeah. So, like, I, I have no problem with it at number two. It's just that nothing happened to be better than it because mm-hmm. it's an incredible movie. You know? Okay. So I don't think staying there is necessarily a problem. All right, but I guess I'm saying even if I look at my top ten, there's movies that might not be in my top ten by the time we do ours because like I, right. I still have like 15 or 16 movies that I really want to want to watch before before I uh, call it a year. Um, but I, I, I did feel like in, in terms of a certain type of feeling that I get watching yeah. movies that I think are great, I've, I had that feeling less often, at least less often with new movies right. this year. I spent a lot of time this year watching older movies that I hadn't seen, including um, things like, um, you just mentioned Carol Reed, but uh, The Fallen Idol, mm. and um, The Archer's um, A Canterbury Tale, which two movies that I saw in 2018 <coughs> that might now be in my top 20 movies of all time. Mm. I had a lot of that this year. I didn't have that much, so much with new movies. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, always very subjective. And I think for me, the main measure is if I feel very strongly about the movies in my top 10, in this case, I do. And if I look at other people's top 10 and they don't share a lot of movies with me, but I'm still looking at it like, all right, makes sense. I'm on board. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's usually kind of the very loose way I get a sense of the year. And that's definitely the case with this year. So how do you want to start off? Uh, with a few honorable mentions of stuff that very well could have been my number 10 choice uh, if the wind's we're swaying the other side. That's a saying. <laughs> no, but I know that that feeling of sometimes like, yeah, I like that movie, but what if I had seen it in a different, you know, state of mind? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or longer ago or yeah. right. more recently or whatever, like those to- totally arbitrary things. Yeah. Uh, just real quick, though, they are Angels Wear White by Vivian Chu, I want to say. Uh, it's a Chinese film about uh, some underage girls who... Uh, 
have an off-screen sexual assault happen to them um, and spend the whole movie with people pulling them in different directions about what happened to them. Uh, and it's really tightly plotted. I mean, it's almost like a noir thriller. Um, it's really an incredible film. Uh, the other film is Hale County, This Morning, This Evening, which is a great documentary about a small town in Georgia by Ramel Ross. And unlike a lot of documentaries, as people who listen to the show a lot know, I'm not the biggest documentary guy. Uh, this is very experiential and very kind of fly on the wall-ish. And then just has random moments that aren't usually in documentaries. Yeah. Like there's this one part where he's filming, I think it's some garbage on fire or something. He's filming the sun showing through the smoke and off screen, you hear this guy going, Hey, what you filming, man? <laughs> and he's like, Oh, just the light coming through the smoke. It's, it's really cool. Um, and the guy's like, all right, I, I, I just wasn't sure. I'm not going to name them because I don't know if they're on your list, but there were a few documentaries sort of, uh, yeah, that definitely broke through the mold of, cause you, all of us and, and, and Julie, your third or fourth favorite person in the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, when we did our fall movie preview complained about the number of documentaries right. that are just like, here's a primer on this person's yeah. life. And there were a number of those, but there were a few documentaries this year that I really liked that either in one case, um, which I don't think is on your list. Won't you be my neighbor? Yeah. I think a very, uh, it, it is a very, it, it's that, but operating at a higher, a high level. And then there are a few that I won't name cause it might come up. Uh, that really took me by surprise. Well, there is one other documentary on my list and it is in this small group of five. And it's, okay. Uh, Cornelio Porumbu's uh, infinite football. Uh, he's a Romanian director who made the treasure and police adjective and oh, when evening falls on Bucharest or metabolism, uh, films that are very, uh, methodical to put it kindly, uh, yeah. slow to put it unkindly and, but very funny. And this is kind of similar. It's about a guy who's trying to reinvent soccer because as a young man, he got severely injured playing soccer and decided to blame the rules of the game on it. <laughs> and so he's trying to change how soccer works and spends the whole movie just reinventing, 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 uh, which the director dubs infinite football, um, because he just can't settle on the perfect way that would keep anybody from being injured. Uh, it's really, really good. Um, and then The Spy Who Dumped Me uh, in a year hmm. that I think was very strong for comedy and specifically mainstream <laughs> comedy. You know, I mean, there's always great stuff like Sally Potter's The Party was really excellent and kind of more intellectual fare, but stuff that's like you could go to the multiplex and could entertain just about anybody. I mean, it was a really strong year for that and nothing was so thoroughly entertaining, made me laugh so hard as The Spy Who Dumped Me. Um, and that's directed by Susanna Fogel, Fogel yeah. uh, who made Life Partners. Which right, which a, I didn't see. I know you like. made my top ten, yeah. whatever year that, 2014. Yeah, I want to see it now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the one that came the closest to the top ten uh, is Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built, uh, which in a time when we're all very much considering male and specifically white male privilege, nothing so thoroughly eviscerated uh, how privileged white men are as this film in which Matt Dillon plays a serial killer who just starts blatantly killing people and bragging about it in open spaces, but nobody believes him because he doesn't look the part. Hmm. Uh, there's a very telling, I mean, Lars von Trier can be very on the nose and this is no exception. Um, there's a very telling scene where a cop is harassing two black people walking down the street while Matt Dillon is uh, placing a severed appendage of one of the victims on, a, on the policeman's car. <laughs> and then uh, in the end, you, I mean, people have complained that uh, Lars von Trier sympathizes too much with Jack, and I think that's true of any of Lars von Trier's subjects. He tends to try to see himself in some way, and I don't think he's accepting himself from the white male privilege he's eviscerating. Um, but by the end of it, I don't see how you could come away thinking he's uh, exactly on Jack's side. Jack is pretty thoroughly uh, demolished as he tries to ascend higher and higher. A character who hates humanity enough to murder them. <laughs> I could see Lars von Trier being on their side for a while. <laughs> I, I, he just, you know, he tries to see himself in all sinners. And yeah. uh, some people aren't on board with that, and that's fine. I was very much on board with this one, though. Um, but into the top ten proper... Uh, kicking it off with Hong Sang-soo's Claire's Camera. Uh, now that Hong's films are actually getting releases, they are probably going to be a staple of my top ten year to year. I'd be surprised if Hotel by the River doesn't make next year's list. Uh, I don't go by David's insane rules where the movies come out, you know, whenever David says they do. <laughs> <laughs> they come out when they come out. In this case, Hotel by the River comes out next year. Yeah. Um, no, it drives people crazy because Hotel by the River, on the one hand, is a 2018 movie for me. Right. But on the other hand, I won't put it on my publicly published top 10 list because that's ridiculous because no one's seen it. So it'll go into another, well, it'll be on my top 10 list for posterity, but no one, I don't need everyone else to know how, how I felt 
it's just yeah. Why well, praise an undersung, underdistributed movie? <laughs> I, I, how, many, how many times have we talked about Hotel by the River on this podcast? But it's the well, severity two, of the praise. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, it's really great. But that's not the movie you're talking about. You're no, talking about I'm Claire's talking camera, about Claire's camera, seen. which uh, when it debuted last year alongside the day after was kind of thought to be the lesser of the two Hongs for this year. Uh, in part, I think because the expectations were so high, Kim mean, he comes back as a main character as does, uh, Isabel Huppert, who was in Hong's 2012 film in another country, which was the first film of his I saw. And I still think it's one of his strongest. It's certainly one of his funniest. Uh, and in this one, uh, Huppert plays a teacher who's visiting the Cannes Film Festival with a friend and who bumps into Kim Min-hee's character. She plays kind of a distribution sales assistant uh, to a woman who's in a relationship with a director who Kim Min-hee has slept with. Uh, when her boss finds out about this, she is uh, quickly fired, but not uh, knowing why she's been fired. She's just told, you know, there's the door, go on your way. But she keeps hanging around Cannes and bumps into Isabel Huppert and they form a sort of friendship and there's just something about this movie that I can't let go of. One, it's beautifully shot. The colors are, have these very vivid yellows, and it's just very pleasing to look at. And at 69 minutes, it doesn't... Nice. Uh, it doesn't need <laughs> terribly more than that to drive it along. But there's so many mysteries about the way the characters interact and what's driving them at any given point. Uh, uh, Isabel Huppert's stories about how she meets can mean he conflicts from scene to scene. And that could be just a result of Hong's shooting style, which is very improvisatory, very kind of by the moment. And increasingly, he doesn't really care about continuity or coherent story. Um, so it could just be a product of that, or it could be something purposeful. Uh, and there's just, like I said, something mysterious at the center, and it never tries to summarize itself. I've often gone on here about films that are very thesis-y and which seem to be driving at a central point. There's no such thing in Hong's films, and I love them all the more for that. I mean, I love that too, but I also think there are movies, you and I have had this conversation before, but there are movies that can be that and be good yeah, at that. Yeah, uh, but I, I think increasingly I'm more uh, drawn to ones that either are explicitly that, like The House That Jack Built, or which don't try to summarize themselves at all. Um, and I think an, one film that toes the line of that, but which avoids it, is my number nine film, Barry Jenkins' uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, I was pretty on board with Moonlight. I thought the last third of it was by far the best part. Um, and this is sort of that emotional tenor stretched out to two hours or however long it is. Uh, it's about a young woman played by Kiki Lane, I want to say. Uh, sound right? All right. Uh, who has recently become pregnant by her boyfriend, who in turn has recently gone to jail on trumped up charges of sexual assault. Uh, this takes place in the early 1970s, around the time the, the novel upon which it's based was written. Um, and I mean, even today, uh, the subject of black men assaulting white women is a very fraught one and is the reason why a lot of black men are unfairly punished. And very quickly it establishes that there's no doubt in any objective sense that, uh, uh, her boyfriend is innocent. Um, also for what's what the, the woman isn't white, right? That's right. You got me. <laughs> no, not that it's, yeah. it, it is uh, a distinction. Um, not that it changes, I think, the reasons he's yeah. unfairly punished, um, but it is a, a distinction worth noting. Um, and so it's just about the two of them and especially their families trying to navigate what to do from there. And it's by turns extremely funny. The first scene we get of the two families meeting is uproariously funny. Uh, I have uh, Kiki, no, not uh, Fonny's, her boyfriend's mother, uh, is one of my 15 minute picks for the BPs uh, because she it comes in. Anjanu Ellis. Yeah. Right? Yeah. She comes in and absolutely just leaves a very distinct impression on where the family relations are and where she's at. Uh, and it's, I think, brave of Jenkins to embrace that kind of overt comedy, especially in a film that is mostly an extremely controlled one. He doesn't have any kind of wildness. Everything feels very distinct and very purposeful. Every time the camera moves, you can feel like there's a reason it's moving. And it's all just extraordinarily beautifully done. I was just completely enraptured by it. And I think the ending, which I won't spoil too much, kind of unseats the certainty he's built to that point where because the film is so confidently made and because the lines of morality and innocence are so clearly drawn, I just got the sense that in some way it was going to work out. And the way in which it doesn't work out, I think is very destabilizing um, in a very productive way. Um, yeah, it's uh, obviously I'm not talking about my list, but uh, you can still comment. It's very near <laughs> where it is on your list, uh, maybe a little higher. Um, my favorite, probably my favorite final shot of any movie. Uh, it's a strong one this year. Um, 
but also say what you, uh, to comment on what you were saying about the camera mostly being sort of predetermined. <coughs> I do think, and I feel like I can't remember if we talked on the podcast or off the podcast. The um, the scene with Dave Franco, yeah, uh, also has a kind of a loose and very, but in a very warm way. That's true. But um, even that, it doesn't feel like. Like, obviously, it's somewhat handheld camera, but it doesn't feel like they were leaving a lot of room for accidents or kind of... I get, I don't want to go too much into what that okay. scene is because I think what it becomes is very beautiful, but there's some <laughs> there's some space work and some improvisation okay. by the characters right. in the movie, and I'm sure that the actors, especially knowing what I know about Dave Franco as an actor, I'm sure the actors would... They weren't pretending to be improvising. I'm sure there's actually some improvising going on. I could see that. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that scene was um, when that scene starts and you've got Dave Franco and Iyamaka. <laughs> it's the one time in the movie that I was briefly taken out of the movie because I was like, that's Dave Franco and Iyamaka. <laughs> um, and then by the end of that scene, it's maybe my favorite scene in the movie. Okay. Uh, anyway. My favorite scene would be Brian Tyree's Henry. That's film there too. scene, which is incredible, which might barely qualify for the 15 minute rule. I know that scene alone is like 12 minutes long. Uh, and I can't remember how much of the rest of the movie's in, if any. There's, there's a little bit before that scene. Right. You see him meet on the street, but I don't think he's really in. It yeah, I think that's it. For the BP 15 minute. Time, time to go home and time my screener. <laughs> um, for the record, it's called the Bruce McGill on the Insider Award. <laughs> Okay. All right. Who's got the time? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> take not, not these people. <laughs> That's the inside joke. Uh, great. So my number eight film is Josephine Decker's Madeline's Madeline, which I was lucky enough to attend the world premiere alongside our esteemed host, David Bax here. Um, uh, you've, you've already mentioned so many movies that I saw with you. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, well, not on your list, but you oh, mentioned okay. The Party. Yeah. You mentioned metabolism. So I feel we ran we into each other a lot. Yeah. That's why I feel like I wasn't going to keep commenting on, cause it's probably <laughs> going to be something else on this list that I saw with you, but I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but yeah, you and I <coughs> saw the world premiere at Sundance of Madeline's Madeline. It was my last film of Sundance. Strong uh, ending this year. Yeah. And my, my last one, my favorite film I saw at Sundance this year. Yeah. It's uh, a wonderful, it's about a young woman played by Helena Howard, uh, named Madeline, naturally, um, who has recently been released from an unspecified stint in a mental institution and who, as part of her rehabilitation, gets in with an experimental theater troupe uh, led by David will remember the actress's name. Molly Parker. Molly Parker. Um, the, the, the Widow Garrett from Deadwood. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'll take your word. <laughs> um, and that relationship is very productive for her, but also quickly takes on a sort of vampiric quality where Molly Parker is using elements of Madeline's life, uh, in this theater piece that they're kind of loosely trying to construct. And as much as the beginning of the film is very destabilizing, you have no idea what's going on as Madeline's playing like a cat and you're like, well, this could be almost anything. Um, but as much as it starts on that note, it quickly, I think, uh, arranges itself around a central idea and the idea that people find this like such a weird outlandish movie is I don't know I think that more says more about them because I think it's pretty easy to follow the emotional tenor of what's going on um, but I think that yeah like you said that opening it's like five minutes yeah <laughs> an opening that is uh, that I love it's it's among my favorite parts of the movie but also I I wonder how much people are um, their opinions of the movie might be informed by the trailer, which was a uh, very weird, <laughs> yeah, very intentionally non-traditional movie trailer. Right. So I wonder if maybe people are and carrying that with them. I don't think is very fitting for the movie. <laughs> like it doesn't seem to really match how the movie feels. Uh, yeah, I agree. I only watched it the once because right. people kept saying it was odd. And I generally try not to watch movie trailers, but, but if you've seen the movie before, like, yeah, that's true. Why not? Um, anyway. Um, and so Madeline increasingly starts to look to Molly Parker's character as a sort of mother figure because her relationship with her own mother, played by Miranda July, is so fraught and unsteady uh, as Miranda July, as a single mother, is trying to provide the environment that Madeline needs without quite knowing what that environment is um, and just constantly flailing as she attempts to do so. And it's very much, I think, about a moment, like another film that we'll get to shortly, about a moment in, when you hit your teens where you start to separate from your parents and start to define your own life and start to figure out what that means. And as I said before, as with the best films, it doesn't quite define what exactly that means by the end. It's just still trapped in that uncertainty. Madeline is still a teenager and will continue to be um, for a while. And she is not going to 
find out who she is or what she wants anytime soon. And the film's willingness to embrace and explore that is, I think, very indicative of Josephine Decker's work and a very strong leap forward as well. I also think it qualifies as stunt casting to cast Miranda July as the most down to earth <laughs> character. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I did get people to see the movie, though. I saw it again at the New Art, and easily half the audience came out just for the Miranda July Q&A. So more power to I don't blame them. Miranda July is awesome. And she's great in the movie. I, I really hope that she does more strictly acting work. As much as I'd like to see another film by her, uh, I think she's a marvelous actress. Um, also in the realm of semi-experimental and certainly audacious movies is Patrick Wayne's A Bread Factory, um, which is a two-part film, both parts running about two hours, uh, about a failing community theater um, that's about to be swallowed up by an experimental theater troupe from China. And it's especially the first part is very much about um, the way that local institutions are being usurped by national brands and the way that communities rush towards those brands. I mean, you saw this very recently in the deal going down with Amazon in New York where, you know, people are on both sides about it for sure, but there is a certain enthusiasm to just be like, well, Amazon's going to be here. It's going to be great. And everything's going to be fixed. And that might not always be true. Sometimes it's good to encourage from the bottom up and encourage local institutions to thrive. Um, and so the first part is very much about the theater trying to hang on to itself and going to court even has a wonderful courtroom scene for about the last half hour of the film that is just them battling for their survival. And it's a very strong first part. And then there's a whole second part that just deals with the fallout of that court case uh, and the way that uh, that kind of infestation in small communities comes in multiple forms. And once kind of one institution finds its way in uh, that opens the door for a whole lot of others and the film increasingly gets strange and provocative there's tap dancing sequences and musical sequences amidst these very like deadpan uh, comedic scenes it's just a very brave uh, adventurous film that I think really pays off uh, the lead performance uh, is by this woman Tyne Daly who is probably most famous for being on Kang and Lacey um, and who was also for that matter in uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs this year hmm. and about, with whom I'm largely unfamiliar but who has a very strong background as a character actress and who takes the lead here extraordinarily well. Trivia question answers. Okay. There are only two actors who have won three lead Emmys for playing three different characters. Okay. Tyne Daly is one. Uh, Julia Dreyfus is the other. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, I think you said there were three. No, there are only two. two, Played three three characters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Um, What were Tyne Daly's other roles? Uh, one of I, uh, I, stuff that is not from, <laughs> I think one is, is crossing Jordan, right? Okay. Mm. Um, um, but no, that wasn't a lead, was it? That was a support. Anyway, um, she's got. There was, a, there was like record. a sitcom that okay. didn't last very long that she won an Emmy for. Hmm, good for her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she plays the lead role with a mix of like bulldog determination and a sort of bemusement and accepting of whatever's going to come. You know, she's older, but, and she's very realistic about the prospects that she faces, uh, but at the same time, isn't going to give up easily at all. It's a totally compelling performance. She's in most of the film and totally holds it together. Um, I also, I haven't watched It's on my, uh, it's right next to other side of the wind on my <laughs> to, sure. to catch up on list. Um, but I understand that James Marsters from Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, is, is in a bread factory. Sure. Might be. I, I never watched Buffy, so I'm oh, not okay. uh, familiar. Uh, well, he's on the IMDb page. Uh, so I'm, okay. it's probably like a one scene role, but I'm like going to watch this four hour movie. That I'm <laughs> thinking of as a James Marsters vehicle. There's a lot of fanboy. other things going on with it. Um, no, I uh, loved um, in the family, Patrick Wang's, uh, yeah, which I haven't seen feature. Uh, this then, is my first Wang. Um, well, interestingly enough, this is, so a bread factory is his third produced film. Okay. The one in between is called the grief of others, which was actually released right. like a week or two after yeah. the bread factory, uh, in theater. Cause he self releases his stuff. Yeah. Uh, at least a bread factory was, um, I think in the U.S. he's self-released everything. Maybe he's oh, had uh, distribution elsewhere. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a weird coincidence that his second movie came out two weeks after his first movie <laughs> or his third movie. Uh, I feel like that happened with somebody else. Ah, it's lost to me now. Anyway, uh, distribution's weird these days, and people are lucky to get whatever they can, frankly. And I'm glad that this film got out there in some measure. Uh, next on the film, what are we at? Number six. I won't have much to say because we talked about a lot in the AFI Fest episode, but it's Hirokazu Kori. It is shop, Shoplifters. Um, like his last, I don't know, half dozen films is very much about the way family is defined <laughs> and the extent to which that 
uh, can hold together. And in this case, it's maybe not going to last. And it already from the jump, this family who subsists on, as the title suggests, shoplifting and very menial labor, uh, and which is takes part in some light kidnapping as they take this girl from a unstable home where she's being abused and take their, her into their house. Uh, you, you know, there's every suggestion that this is not made to last and their apartment is held together by sticks. Practically. It's, it's a wonder they've survived this long, but the way Coriata draws out the certainty that they can surely by how much they love each other and the way he explores how that love is enough and isn't enough in the face of overwhelming obstacles is so moving. And like I said, in the AFI Fest episode, it's pretty rare these days that I'm truly depressed by a great film, but I was truly depressed by shoplifters. All right. So that was number six, I think, right? Yes. What's number five? Number five, you guys have shamefully let me talk about the other side of the wind all by myself. Sorry. <laughs> uh, shame on you, truly. Uh, Orson Welles, The Other Side of the Wind is magnificent, thoroughly worth the long wait for it. I mean, I guess I don't know. I wasn't waiting since the 1970s. I heard about it like five, ten years ago. What do I know? It was worth that long wait, at least. Um, and which I'm amazed they ever managed to assemble. To watch it is to be in pure astonishment of the editing at hand, not only for how much material there was to work through, but the way they worked through it in such a lyrical and beautiful way that totally honors Wells aesthetic and Wells personality. But you know, I mean, we can't ultimately know, Mm -hmm. but it does feel as much like an Orson Welles film as any of his other incomplete or ill assembled projects of which there are far too many. Uh, this one in particular concerns a film director who is premiering a rough cut of his latest and similarly uh, ill-begotten film titled Itself The Other Side of the Wind, which is kind of a riff on the sort of hippie aesthetic that had been taking over Hollywood in the late 60s and early 70s. People specifically point to Michelangelo and Antonioni's Zabriskie point, and I understand why, but the timeline is so close on the two of those between while shooting the fictional footage in the other side of the wind. Well, it's all fictional. Anyway, uh, <laughs> him shooting the film within a film and there's a point coming out that I think he was more just getting a sense of the temperature of Hollywood at the time of these older filmmakers desperately trying to figure out what the youth market wants and mostly resorting to weird colors and a lot of nudity. Um, the film director in The Other Side of the Wind is played magnificently by John Houston with, I've come to learn, uh, some overdubbing work by his son, Danny Houston, mm. uh, who, it turns out, can sound exactly like John Houston any old time he wants to. <laughs> um, that surprise me. Yeah. Uh, so between the two of them, they assemble a pretty magnificent, fascinating character. Uh, the shooting style is such that it kind of introduces itself as a pseudo-documentary. Uh, the footage having been purportedly assembled from a bunch of people who are attending this party where he's premiering the film is attended by a bunch of film enthusiasts and filmmakers themselves. Uh, and they're all shooting their own material. And, you know, I mean, it requires some suspension of disbelief because they keep getting access to the increasingly, these increasingly private moments, but you know, no more so than the officer parks and rack or any, uh, pseudo documentary asks to be this one benefits though, from identifying that, uh, everybody's going to have a different camera. And so you get black and white footage, you get, eight millimeter footage you get full on 35 it's all over the place oh, wow. the cinematography is breathtaking uh, i saw this once in a like film natural born killers sure i've never seen natural born, born killers well it also uses 35 yeah 68 yeah some, every sort of thing you can think of i do know that some people who have seen both have remarked on how uh oliver stone seems to have just stolen outright wells aesthetic at the time whether or not he saw the footage i couldn't say um but it creates just this kaleidoscopic approach, which like many Wells films ultimately comes up with the conclusion of how, you know, you can't really know anybody. And for whatever we see of John Houston's character, we can't ultimately summarize him. There are ways, suggestions various characters make as they try to get to know him. Uh, suggestions that probably were made about Wells himself, about his reclusiveness, his inability to finish projects, uh, hints of perhaps homosexuality, uh, but none, anytime he's on screen, none seem to quite explain the guy and none could as Wells typically tends to feel uh, and rightly so. Uh, it's just a, I mean, like I said, top to bottom, it's a breathtaking film. Houston's magnificent as are the multiple supporting characters. Some of them come through for, you know, it's blinking. You miss it. I don't remember at all. Dennis Hopper being in it, but apparently he is, uh, to Peter Bogdanovich giving one of the best supporting performances of the year as very much the 
what you think Peter Bogdanovich played, the role he played in Orson Welles' own life. Uh, this mm-hmm. kind of somewhat of a clinger on to the fam- more famous director, but also clearly a guy on the rise who has more power at this point than the more famous director and who can get things done. Whereas the filmmaker is, uh, struggling to do so. Um, yeah. And it's as self incriminating as anything else Wells has made and as exploratory about, uh, his faults and what he's left behind and the desire to put something together and fitting in some way that the film ultimately can't be properly finished. But then again, what is, uh, number four, Deborah Granick's leave no trace. <laughs> What's that so noise? good. It's, it is so good. It's um, so good. I somewhat hated Winter's Bone, and unfortunately, due to that, did not see her documentary, which I know you saw, David. It's Straight called Dog. Straight Dog. Straight, I know. Yeah. Now I really want to see it because Leave No Trace is completely one eight, complete one eighty from Winter's Bone. It has none of the kind of crime trappings or like, ooh, it's the South. Watch out. Um, it's just very empathetic to these people and the point they're at at their lives. Uh, like so many great films before, it is shot in the outskirts of my hometown, Portland, Oregon. Uh, it is about a father and daughter played by Ben Foster and Thomasine McKenzie. Thomasine McKenzie, yeah. Yeah. Um, who are living in Forest Park, uh, living rough, as uh, the romantics would put it, and uh, homeless, as the city would probably put it. Um, and inevitably, they are found out uh, given, uh, the daughter's age, she's probably what, 14, 15. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, given her age, it's not a suitable environment for her according to most decent standards. Um, and they quickly rush the both of them into some kind of home setting. And no matter how good the setting seems to be, uh, Ben Foster's character just cannot find home in it. Um, but the young girl is more malleable. She's like Madeline in Madeline's Madeline, very much coming into her own and very much realizing the things she might want that her father doesn't want. And that what her father might want might not be right for her. And that struggle is incredibly well drawn in the film. It's humorous at turns, but mostly attuned to just the small shifts in mood between the two of them. Uh, never really gets terribly melodramatic and never really, uh, I don't know, milks the premise for more than it's worth. It just kind of drifts along and settles in this uncertainty that we all have to reach at some point where we look at our parents, we look at ourselves and we figure out that what they want for us, you know, the things, the the good things they've imparted and the things that we can probably leave behind and (coughs) redefine for ourselves. Um, it's absolutely breathtaking. I was hooked from moment one. And like I said, I couldn't have been more surprised given my indifference to uh, Winter's Bone. <laughs> I liked Winter's Bone. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting read on Winter's Bone. I recognize <laughs> that is not your, uh, that's probably not the full ex- fullest extent of your uh, opinion. I haven't seen it since it came out, so who's to say? Right. First movie I ever watched on Blu-ray. Oh, really? Because that, that was 2010? 10. Yeah. So Christmas 2010, Natalie mm-hmm. got me a Blu-ray player. And I think it was the end of the year. I was trying to catch up on stuff from that year. And I went yeah. to the red box and got the winner's bone Blu-ray. All right. It was the first thing I ever watched on a, on Blu-ray. Wow. Yeah. I bet it looks pretty good on Blu-ray. Sure. Yeah. That um, would have been one of the last ones I saw theatrically on film. <laughs> it's yeah. Uh, I, I don't, I don't can, I don't, think i see it that way it's interesting that one is shot outside where you used to <laughs> yeah, live and another is, yeah uh, in the ozarks um where i am not from you spent some time i only lived there for three years <laughs> the number of people i guess i do bring up that i did win best actor in the state of missouri so people probably think that and that's also kind that you of lived in jason Bourne's hometown of nixon missouri yeah so i guess i do kind of define myself uh in some ways in that regard but um yeah, I actually don't see it as a. Now, I re, sorry, I realize yeah, I was talking about we're, no trace, sorry, <laughs> which I haven't seen, so we, we can move on. Uh, off mic, I'll ask you more about. Uh, I probably uh, don't remember exactly yeah. why I think what I think. Okay. Um, I don't want to say too much about Leave No Trace because I can pretty much guarantee it's going to come up with Tyler and I do our top right. ten mm-hmm. of the year. But um, yeah, in a, in a in a film that does like is so unpretentious and so naturalistic in so many ways. Deborah Grant doesn't tend to work, at least in this film, largely in symbolism, except for, I think, in one major part that really struck home to me. You said when they're first found, they're given a home by a charitable Christian man, played by the great character actor Jeff Kober, um, who uh, employs Ben Foster's character on his Christmas tree farm. 
and there's something incredibly almost sometimes fun, sometimes humorously, but often very sadly ironic about all the things that Christmas represents in terms of home and family, but all the things that Christmas trees represent in terms of nature being sort of like pruned down and commodified and all of those things. It's it's such an incredibly rich metaphor is what Natalie and I ended up talking about for like a full 10 minutes. And the end of the movie was the whole Christmas tree uh, sequence. It's really, really beautiful Hmm. stuff. That's a great observation. It made me think of one of my favorite moments in the film and one of my favorite moments over year. Oh, over the course of the year that sort of underlines in a film that isn't over adorned aesthetically, I would say is fairly low key. Um, how a set choice can quickly define a film when they first get to that home that you mentioned, uh, they're walking through the doorway and you can still hear like the sounds of nature and then he shuts the front door and it's totally shut out. And then it cuts to a wide shot of him just standing there, no sounds around him, all the things that we've come to get used to, you know, sort of reflexively. We don't really think about the fact that nature has an embedded sound, but suddenly he's cut off from all that and we see the exact struggle he's going through. Yeah. It's a very strong choice. Great movie. Uh, Number three. I think I'm the only one who likes this movie this much, but that's fine. It's Gus Van Sant's Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. Um, hey, I saw it, and I liked it. That's how I felt about <laughs> it at first. And then, I don't know, I had a, a pretty... Not, I'm not going to sit around here and brag anything. I had a pretty great summer. And then this film came out sort of on the tail end of a series of happy instances <coughs> for me, and which couldn't have come at a better time, because I realized some things that were nagging at me about the film, and which a second viewing really clarified that it's very much about the way a sort of enlightenment, the way that we ideally try to take full stock of our lives, our faults, our failings and our successes and try to hold them all together and try not to, you know, damn ourselves for our faults or praise ourselves for our successes, but try to form a complete picture of ourselves that is realistic and acceptable and that we can move forward with. And that doesn't mean, you know, you forgive yourself everything and it doesn't mean that you're the greatest person on earth, but you, you sort of develop a, a way of living and to take that approach within the genre of uh, a man recovering from a serious accident that leaves him uh, paraplegic is an interesting take. You know, the physical struggle is very much there and his frustrations, you know, every film at disability has to have the part where he just curses out his chair because nothing's going right. Um, But it takes those seriously in a larger spiritual context and then also wraps those in his alcoholism and the way that that has inhibited him so far. Uh, and which he's trying to break free from. It's a very nonlinear film. It starts, I think, in a way that defines the structure of the film and ends on two similar notes. One scene in which he's being lauded as a cartoonist. Uh, it's about John Callahan, by the way, the Portland cartoonist. Hey, another Portland connection. Good for me. <laughs> um, and good for filmmaking. Um, so do you just like when stuff takes place in and around Portland? Is that what it's all uh, about for you? Look at me in St. Louis. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? My favorite film, my favorite film is things to do in Denver when you're dead, (laughs) which is weird now that I think about it. Yeah. Good point. Go on. Anyway. Um, so it's, yeah, it's about a cartoonist who achieved a certain level of fame. So at the beginning of the film on one scene, he's being honored for that. And then the next he's speeding down the sidewalk in his wheelchair and completely wipes out. Uh, and a bunch of skateboarding kids loosely make fun of him and try to help him along. And it very much holds in mind these two ends of him that for all his achievements, he's never going to not be kind of a brash asshole who thinks he can just speed down the sidewalk and nothing will happen to him. Um, and Joaquin Phoenix's performance in the main role is very good, as are nearly all of Phoenix's roles these days. And But the standard performance to me, which will come as no surprise to those who have seen it, and which is probably the best male performance I've seen in any film this year, is Jack Black, who, in easily under 15 minutes, and will definitely be on my ballot in that category, uh, defines not only this one character, I mean, really, all, from the moment he shows up, he defines the character. Through the rest of the film, he defines a whole emotional state and sense of being that the whole film is in some way concerned with. And he too has his ups and downs of what little of his life we see, uh, and has also has his regrets that he's trying to live with and hasn't managed to live with them in the same way that, uh, John Callahan has. And the tragedy of his state and the hope that it suggests that he could finally find a way to break out of it is very touching. And I, I mean, I love Jack Black, but he's great in almost everything. And I don't know that he's exactly been better, especially in a supporting role. Yeah. I, um, uh, didn't like it as much as you, um, cause I 
there are certain things about the sentimental Gus Van Sant that rears its head every other film, I think. Yeah, but I mean, as a gigantic fan of Goodwill Hunting, I, I got no problem with okay. the sentiment. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, there's also a lot of uh, really, um, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for, uh, but um, there's a lot of the a lot of a lot of the movie that makes me question what I'm being seen, what I'm being shown. In the sense, I mean, I've talked to you. I don't think you right. agree with me about Rudy Mara's character not really existing <laughs> and just being a figment of his imagination. Um, but even less literally than that, I do, and I know you disagree with me here too because we talked about it. But I'm not, I'm not convinced that Gus Van Sant thinks John Callahan's car- cartoons are funny. And I think one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he goes to the bar and he's showing his right. latest cartoon to like the bartender and the other bar flies or whatever. And they're all having different reactions about why it's funny. And then one person says it's not funny. Right. Um, and I feel like that, uh, that's one of my favorite scenes because I do think it's, uh, maybe a little bit less. That scene is maybe more by Gus Van Sant than it is John Callahan and him struggling with, uh, whether he actually likes the guy's work. Um, I mean, I, at least in interviews, he's very effusive in praising John Callahan's work. So <laughs> what wouldn't he be? That's the, that's the politic thing to do, I guess. But <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, I mean, the, John Callahan's been dead several years. I don't think he'd be ruffling too many feathers if he said, you know, he's had his hits and misses. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know. John Callahan's family was at the premiere. Um, okay. He might not say it at the premiere. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So uh, I made this movie about this asshole that is not funny. Incidentally. No, but I don't think, like, I don't think he dislikes him either. I think right. he's not sure. And that's why that scene is in there. Having uh, not seen the scene, do you think it's a possibility that Van Sant is using that moment to comment on his own work? Uh, possibly. Oh, possibly. And just I like mean, that's the way. Always, yeah. I mean, that's to bring up, a movie that's not on your list, I'm sure. But another 2018 biopic that I'm not entirely sure likes its uh, subject is Robert Zemeckis' Welcome to Marwin, which is mm-hmm. much more interesting when thought of as a movie about Robert Zemeckis yeah, right. um, than about Mark Hogenkamp. Uh, uh, Welcome to Marwin is in my top 30 for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we, ju- we actually just talked about it in the movie journal okay. the, this week, and I think it has it just... it. Zemeckis makes the Zemeckis choices at the very end that feel. Yeah, like, the end is a mess. Yeah, and it just it. I always get so frustrated by him, except yeah. for uh, Allied, which nobody liked but me. It's fine. Its best parts are at the end. I'll give it that. <laughs> um, anyway, but just to comment quickly on that scene, I think it's very much in tune with the rest of the movie. That you know, you're going to have hits and misses. Not everyone's going to see things the same way, but he keeps producing art, and they talk about in the film the difference between art and craftsmanship. And that, you know, you can objectively appreciate craftsmanship, but in the end, art is, you know, everyone's going to feel a little differently about it. Mm. Um, so on to my number two, which, as I think I mentioned at the top of the show, was my number one for most of the year. And rightly so. It's Claire Denis' Let Sunshine In, which is incredible, top to bottom, and which I saw at AFI Fest for the first <laughs> time last year, and which I was totally floored by. It's about, uh, Claire Denis plays a woman in her you know, Claire Dini age, um, who's, uh, divorced from her husband some time ago and her romantic life since then has perhaps not worked out in the way she would have hoped, uh, after finding a sense of freedom from that divorce. And it's mostly about her bouncing from man to man and feeling various types of fulfilled and unfulfilled by each. And the way that people are constantly, you know, have an eye towards something else, you know, a certain unsettled quality. I I've never had the experience of doing online dating myself. Um, but friends that I have have talked about how it's kind of like shopping and that people seem to constantly have their eye on at least the possibility of there being someone else out there that you could find. And without being explicit about that technological edge, that's very much what let the sunshine is exploring and the certain unsettled quality we all feel at some point or another, a certain restlessness um, that the life we're building you know, it, in some way could be better that there could be someone just a little more perfect. Who's a little more refined, a little less messy, you know, whatever the minor complaint is, uh, there's someone out there who can uh, <laughs> solve that and bring that to fruition. Uh, I think Claire, or yeah, Julie Binoche gives, uh, the best performance of the year. Mm-hmm. She's absolutely mesmerizing and spontaneous and strange and for a film that's all about love gives a great impression of a character's rich inner life that is not 
purely defined by that. Um, this has nothing to do with the movie itself because I haven't seen it, but when you saw it at AFI Fest, it was not called Let the Sunshine In. I know. It's called Bright Sunshine In. Which makes no sense. <laughs> okay, so you like the new title. I mean, neither are... I mean, the first one's more accurate, but it makes no sense because the French title literally translates to like a great sunshine within. Okay. Um, I see. And which is somewhat ironic given the subject of the film, but which, you know, directly translated to English doesn't quite fit. And Bright Sunshine Inn is closer, but it, it, that's not something anybody has ever said. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Let the Sunshine Inn works. It's fine. You know, as retitled films go, it's not the worst offense I've seen. Yeah. Um, so on to number one, which oh. I've praised uh, effusively on this show before. We need some build up, don't we? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Hang on. Okay. All right. So we're we're gonna be hitting Scott's number one. Yeah. And uh, so let's just give it a moment. So as uh, yeah to build up. Let's got take a drink of water. We yeah. did ten. We did nine. After that was eight. we did eight. Followed by very seven. very swiftly by seven. Number one is <laughs> Cold War by Pavel Pavlikovsky, uh, which we talked about a lot in the AFI Fest episode. By the way, another one we saw it together, although not your first. Not my first time. Uh, I mostly saw it to try to. Tr- well, I wanted to see it again, but then I wrote notes about what time periods each segment takes place in because yeah. I wanted to get a sense of how much is time time has passed between each segment. Uh, for a short film, it's only 85, 89 minutes. Uh, it covers a vast swath of post-war Polish history in which uh, a man named Victor is trying to establish a music academy. Uh, his star pupil, at least in his eye, is this young woman named Zula, played by Joanna Kulig, who certainly gives Julia Benoche a run for her money in Best Performance of the Year. Uh, I know David <laughs> hates these people, but uh, I was pretty thoroughly mesmerized by... Uh, I think the movie's really, really good. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just, yeah. I just, just, I don't know. <laughs> I find them both kind of boring. Boring boring uh that's i mean i could find them being unlikable but boring is uh hard to wrap my head around I guess boring in the sense i don't find the movie boring but boring in the sense that i wouldn't i wouldn't want to spend more than well you're wiser than i am because <laughs> um, zula certainly reminded me of many women i've been attracted to and uh, i'm glad i did not in any way end up with because <laughs> um, she uh she seems very marked by the wartime experience and uh, can't find a way to settle her life in any of the ways in which she tries first in Victor's music Academy. And then later as a pop star in France, Uh, they kind of float in and out of a relationship the whole time. Uh, Neither of them happy when they're together and potentially worse off when they're apart. Who can say Uh, some have pegged the film as uh, being overly negative about communism, which, you know, I mean, isn't the worst thing to be overly negative about, but uh, the characters aren't any happier under capitalism either. (laughs) They're just fundamentally unhappy people who aren't capable of finding any kind of peace or settlement and which who who just keep chasing uh, grander and grander gestures of their commitment to one another, even though they can't, in any real sense, stay committed. Uh, and the way that Pavlikasi explores that is very touching and very moving and very thrilling in its own way because it's so short. Even though each scene summarizes so much about the people and their circumstances, uh, there's it still kind of cuts before you want it to. You know, you're always kind of wanting a little bit more out of each scene in a good way because the characters are wanting a little bit more out of their lives that they can't quite settle on. It's gorgeously shot. Uh, Pavel Koska also has an image credit, whatever that means, even though he has a formal cinematographer. But like his previous film, Ida, it's shot in the 4-3 aspect ratio with a lot of headroom up top that kind of leaves space for the characters. Uh, hopes and dreams and frustrations to just constantly be weighing down on them. And even though, you know, it's prone to a certain perfect shotness uh, where every film, every frame seems immaculately composed. He'll break that in a heartbeat. If the character's uh, emotional tenor gets too rocky for that. Uh, There's a scene where Joanna Kulig dances to rock around the clock. That's totally thrilling and totally amazing and beautifully done in this one take that starts with this perfect composition and then wields in this crazy handheld motion. Uh, And it points to just how willing the film is to kind of break its own rules to get to uh, a very unsettling conclusion. Um, yeah, I absolutely love this film, and I can't wait to watch it many more times. And that's my number one. All right, Great. Um, that's a worthy number one. Even though obviously I'm, even though you hate it, I it's, <laughs> I think this is going back to what I was saying earlier. There are a lot of movies like this right. this year that I really appreciate on a lot of levels. M- most of them intellectual mm-hmm. that I had a harder time connecting to emotionally. Um, 
to some extent, I think I, I, I would, uh, I know you didn't like it that much, but I would place Roma probably above Cold War, but I kind of had the same, most of my respect for Roma comes from an intellectual reaction to right. it, less from an emotional one. And uh, yeah, Cold War uh, is a, kind of a prime example of what I'm, what I'm talking about. I really respect it. You heard it here I really first. <laughs> if a movie's shot in black and white, David will find it boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's funny. Um <coughs> But, uh, no, I think, yeah, the movie is beautiful. I also think, I'm repeating some of what I said on our AFI Fest episode, but um, uh, the way that it foregrounds the characters and backgrounds the transition (coughs) over, what what is it, like 20 years? Thereabouts, 15 to 20 years. 15 to 20 years of, 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 um, like, communist Poland and uh, capitalist, uh, Paris and Berlin, right? Oh, yeah. Um, the way that it puts that in the background and yet uses the story to illustrate, even in 89, in 89, 89 minutes, suggests um, and translates so much about how how things were changing over that time. I think it's kind of, I hadn't heard these complaints in the movies hard on communism, but it's kind of <laughs> ridiculous to me that Pavel, Pavel, Pavel Pavlikovsky is making a movie that is based on his own experience in many ways, or his parents' experience. Right. Uh, I think he's allowed to feel however the fuck he wants <laughs> yeah. about communist I mean, Poland. I think that's true of any filmmaker. You know, they, all they can do is express it and, you right. know, you can see it how you want. Um, but I, I appreciated that it backgrounded that stuff because... Yeah, that's, it, I like that too. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying you didn't like that. It, no, I'm just saying the fact the characters in the foreground and the fact that I couldn't right. connect to the characters okay. is what kept me from from loving the movie. But I no, I don't wish that it had foregrounded the political okay. stuff. I'm glad that it's in the background. Well, we'll end on a part we agree on then. All right. <laughs> Uh, anything else about this year that you wanted to? Not really. Like I said, this is an exceptional year. There are another 10 to 20 movies that I could have easily put in the top 10 and it would have been just fine. Now I know we don't want to end on a negative (laughs) note, but I want to. Okay. So, uh, listeners, if you don't want to end on a negative note, you can come back to this later and it'd be a whole separate podcast for all you're concerned. We'll get you next time. (laughs) Okay. Now, uh, do you, I forget? Do you rank like your I don't movies? rank everything? Okay, no. so if I were to ask you what is your least favorite movie, I do feel like maybe I have in the an future. Instinct. I feel like in the future when we when we do your top ten, okay. I feel like structuring it similar to ours, like least favorite. What is it? Overrated, underrated, and then like five honorable mentions, and then the top ten. Okay. Not that I'm asking all those now because it's putting you on the spot. But as far as like a least favorite, I'm. It's always interesting to me the movies that you really don't like. I mean, this one won't come as a surprise, but Vice is the one that stands out most strongly oh. as clearly a awful movie. That, Fun. <laughs> that is completely misguided and which uses the estimable <laughs> talents of its cast and crew to completely stupid ends <laughs> and that's and that's actually uh as much as i really dislike the movie it is not i think it's in my bottom 10 of the year but it's not the the it's not last partially because i think the cast is doing so good a job but the but it's, it's the frustration that like imagine them doing this in a better movie yeah i mean the cast is fine i don't think any of them are exceptional but to me talent put to a bad use will always be worse than sure. like just displays a bad talent. Sure. Like it's so much more frustrating and aggravating and tiresome than people who just can't quite get it together. Yeah. And there is something, you know, every year there's probably some bullshit horror movie or something like right. that, like truth or dare. Or, yeah. Sorry, Blumhouse truth or dare. Um, <laughs> that, yeah, it's, it's, it's bad and it was always going to be bad. Right. I, I mean, I want to keep an open mind when I'm seeing it, of course, but Blumhouse made some good stuff. Yeah. Uh, but just with this, with that. So I think like that might be at the bottom of my list right now, but when it comes right down to it, when you look at <laughs> an argument could be made that vice had further to fall and it did. That's and thus, so that maybe kind of, it should the be the kind of stuff you're talking about. The, 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 the lazy cash grab type of yeah. movies. Those are never going to be at the bottom of my list. It's always going to be something yeah. that, more uh just got under my skin with its laziness or, or yeah. its or its irresponsibility or in the case of vice its lack of curiosity yeah yeah uh, it's gonna be movies that not movies that i was like oh that's stupid it's movies that i walked out of angry yeah uh, at the movie <laughs> which is i'm not gonna give any hints as to what my <laughs> worst of the year is but uh it's 
things like that. Yeah, it's there. There's an element of to bring to pick on uh, Blum, pick on Blumhouse's truth or dare. Who who cares? Uh, yeah, you walk out and you're like that wasn't very good, but who gives a shit? Yeah, yeah. Similarly, it could have been good, and it would have been like that was pretty good, but who gives a shit? <laughs> Whereas, as opposed to something like Vice, where it's yeah, it's uh, it had ambition, which is not a bad you know that's a good thing but i think within that it was actually tremendously it, lazy i don't think it actually had ambition uh, <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe he not. thinks it, that's ambitious anyway uh, i am going to put you on the spot real quick sure because you do your list differently can you give us a sneak peek of some great movies that are coming out in 2019 that you've I already seen can i just have to pull open my list which i can do right now loading 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 uh, we talked about Hotel by the River. Yeah, great. Uh, the Wild Pear Tree, also great. Okay. Uh, Long Day's Journey into Night, which is has a 3D hour-long single take shot in its back half. That it, wow. The whole movie is quite stunning, but you know that's the marquee item for sure. Um, those are the big ones for me right now. Oh, I also like Three Faces quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I like Climax. Climax is getting kind of an uneven rap, but uh, oh, yeah. I like that Gaspar Noe. If I were to make this list, Climax would be... Up there, as with Three Faces and Hotel by the River, also her smell. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. Uh, I've only uh, seen nine movies from next year, so. <laughs> and uh, I know you must be excited about the Image Book. Yes, very it's much. Fantastic. So. Yeah, I'm very uh, excited. After his little 3D trifle, he's yeah, gotten back yeah, yeah. to making good movies. <laughs> <laughs> Who is this? John Goodhart. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, so thanks for coming here and uh, sharing your top ten. Thanks for enduring my sickness. <laughs> uh, no problem. We're all sick. Yeah, at that time of year. Um, listeners, you can find us at BattleshipRetention dot com, where you can find, hopefully soon, Scott's written top ten. I'm sure. <laughs> I think it's due in a couple of days from when this posts. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, so you can find um, write ups of those movies, and and you'll have a bunch of top te- tops ten over the next couple months leading up to ours me and tyler's the main event um uh, and you can find all sorts of movie reviews um what did I, this week i reviewed oh speak talk about horror movies that look like they're going to be nothing and end up, <laughs> end up being great not great but uh notable escape room is a blast it's I, so much it, fun it, it looks it, intriguing it uh, looks like a lot of fun yeah actually. it is a lot of fun um, and, and i, I, and I no love escape rooms yeah the I've three of us should do an escape one. room sometime yeah I'm bad at it, but I'll go. Okay. Um, I only done one. I did. Okay, I did. Okay. We didn't beat it, but we, I, I think we did. Okay. Uh, anyway, um, so escape room. Yeah. You have a re- uh, review of that. I also will, by the time we hear this, have reviewed, uh, Jacques Rivette's La, Ra- La Religieuse or the nun. Great movie. Um, yeah, I just watched it last night. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, uh, so listeners have already heard me talk about it on the movie journal. Okay. We're all bored yet. for the thing Scott um, wasn't here to hear yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, those reviews are up. You can email us at David at or Tyler at battleship You can follow me, David on Twitter at Davey pretension. You can follow Tyler at Tyler pretension, Tyler real quick, more than one lesson, anything going on? Uh, nothing as far as the podcast, but on the website, there are always, uh, other podcasts uh, that you can listen to in various reviews. Uh, but I did also want to mention, I talked, talked about it on the movie journal uh faith and filmmaking which is a nine-part uh video series that i did for faith life tv um and so uh it is available only to members so you would need to sign up but you can get the first two weeks free and then watch my series and then quit Uh, (laughs) so um mostly because you know if you're not if you're not christian i don't think you would really enjoy anything the streaming series has to offer the streaming uh service has to offer but uh uh, my series is very isn't particularly uh, overt about the the faith stuff. It's much more educational mm-hmm. um, to such an, to such a degree that I think it, listeners, if you if you want to go just to like support me, good for you. But it's I don't think you're going to learn anything that you don't already know. Uh, there are some fun interviews on there, but beyond that, uh, you might enjoy the video essay element of it but from an educational point uh, perspective this is meant to be just like entry-level stuff so uh i would love if you wanted to go and support me in that way but i totally understand if you don't want to uh scott where can people find you uh, on twitter at rail of tomorrow at battleship com and at criterioncast.com where we'll shortly be talking about uh ingmar bergman's faith tr- trilogy uh through a glass darkly uh winter light and the silence thumbs up or thumbs down i'm a fan oh, okay all right well thank you for being here thanks for having me thank you at home for listening we'll get you next time bye bye
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.